Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence, and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Nicholas Gruen about the growing interest of governments in well-being, something broader than living standards or GDP per capita. Former New Zealand PM Jacinda Ardern rebranded her national budget as a well-being budget. Wales has a future generations commissioner, and now Australia is going to produce a well-being framework called Measuring What Matters. As you'll hear in our conversation, Nicholas is highly supportive of bringing well-being into policymaking, but at the same time, he's sceptical of the way we're going about it. He breaks down what's wrong with the way we're doing it. In short, there's too many platitudes and too much top-down thinking, and he explains how we could really make a difference if we did it right. Nicholas is CEO of Lateral Economics, he's an angel investor, and he's headed various government inquiries, including the Australian Government 2.0 Task Force. According to the Financial Times' Martin Wolf, Nicholas is a brilliant man who deserves to be better known. Although he's widely known within Australia and he has an ever-growing international reputation. This episode is a joint production with Nicholas's YouTube show, Uncomfortable Collisions with Reality. So please consider checking out his other content on that channel when you get a chance. A follow-up to the conversation in this episode will be available on that channel. Righto, now for my conversation with Nicholas Gruen on well-being. I hope you enjoy it. Nicholas, thank you. Uh, good to uh, to be with you. So, I mean, you're aware that New Zealand has a well-being budget, doesn't it? And our own government here in Australia, it's going to be releasing a measuring what matters statement. So it's looked at what New Zealand's done and it's been, uh, it's excited by that. There's a lot of interest in well-being at the moment. What do you attribute that to, Nicholas? It comes and it goes, Gene. I think this this urge, it's an anti-agenda. In other words, it comes from a frustration with the idea that we are obsessed with economics, we're obsessed with dollars and cents, we're obsessed with a single measure, and that single measure is GDP. And there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, GDP is, in fact, a much better measure of human well-being than we think, but that's a little bit like saying democracy is a terrible, uh, it's a terrible measure. If you have to have a single measure, it's, you know, I think you we can improve it somewhat, but there are all kinds of ways in which GDP is a much better measure than you might think. And that's kind of partly because you can't get rich without attending to basic social facts. And social institutions like schools, hospitals, families have to be in reasonable functioning order if you're going to have a wealthy society. So in a kind of an indirect sense, measuring how wealthy countries are does help you distinguish between societies that are relative, functioning relatively well and societies that are not functioning relatively well. Please don't 
think that that's me saying we should put down our glasses and forget about the deficiencies in GDP. So uh, Bobby Kennedy put it best many years ago, 1968, when he said that GDP measures all those things in life except the things that matter most to us, how well we bring up our kids, how beautiful our cities are, how kind we are to each other, how we man- how effective we are at staying out of wars. GDP doesn't measure any of those things, uh, and it doesn't measure a whole lot of other things as well. So the, I think quite a good way to think of the, the well-being agenda is to say that it's trying to draw our attention to those deficits. And uh, I'd be very happy to say that it should live or die by how successful it is in addressing those deficits. Okay. So well-being is going to be correlated with GDP per capita to an extent. Yep. And yep. is it the and case we see that, that... And we see that in the... Uh, there's this famous thing called the Easterland par- yeah. Paradox. Why don't you tell us what the Easterland Oh, well, I was going to ask you. <laughs> but uh, the, way yeah. I, the way I remember it, if I'm remembering it correctly, is that up until a level of... Is it personal or household income, which years ago I think was about seventy-five or eighty thousand US dollars? No, it was quite a lot less. Was it a lot less? Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get a strong correlation between GDP and subjective well, and people telling you that they think their lives are working out relatively well. Uh, If you go and you know, it's not very surprising if you go and ask people in war-torn Sudan or somewhere like that, or highly corrupt and poor places. Well-being is low and GDP is low, and they climb together, and then they tail off, and then the relationship tails off. And I think it was about twenty thousand dollars per annum where you get that tail off. Um, remember, this is uh, it might be even less than that because remember, I think it's dates to nineteen seventy-four, the Easterland paradox. And in many ways, it probably comes out of the kinds of sentiments that Bobby Kennedy was giving expression to in 1968. And it says, look, after you get tolerably wealthy, other things seem to matter more to people than how much more wealthy they're getting. Yeah. And what's this idea of well-being? So I'd like to ask, is this happiness? Is it utility? To what extent is a a government's, uh, when they're promoting well-being, is that about promoting the the greatest good for the greatest number, as Jeremy Bentham expressed it. How do you? Yeah, I mean, I like to be vague about this, and I like to be vague, I mean, uh, constructively vague. And what I mean by that, in fact, if you're vague, then you can honor the well-being agenda as an what I called earlier a kind of anti-agenda. It is saying, hang on. Where we're never, it's pretty unlikely we'll ever not manage for GDP, but that leaves out all these other things. And the thing is that if you try and say, you you can use words. I mean, Bentham had this problem himself when he said the greatest good for the greatest number. He could never quite say what good was. Mm. He would sort of associate it with pleasure or whatever. And as you know, what economists did in the, towards the end of the 19th century is that they, did a little bit of on-the-spot metaphysics and said that economics was about utility, that the ultimate output from the economy was not money, can't take it with you and you can't eat it. It was money existed to improve utility. And 
I think utility is a nice word. It anchors the activity to what we all think of, and certainly we did in the late 19th century and early 20th century, as all the useful things about life. Today, our lives are much more postmodern. They're much more saturated with fantasies, uh, entertainment, advertising, and so on. And that's created all kinds. I mean, it's why I rather like that. The, the, um, this is an Australian word for people overseas, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, the daggy, if you like, nerdy uh, sense of the word utility. It's saying, how can we be useful? And we get a lot of utility. A, a poor person who is a paraplegic gets a lot of utility out of a wheelchair, the hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of utility. If you want to get that much that much usefulness to someone who is able-bodied and has plenty of money, you'd have to do an awful lot to be more useful to them than a wheelchair is for a paraplegic person. So I think of it as quite an anchoring, quite an egalitarian idea. So did Bentham. And this is one of the things, this is one of the characteristics of economics during its period of what I call clarified common sense. People like Alfred Marshall, Cecil Pigou, who were working in the turn of the 20th century, they built their idea about what the economy about was about around usefulness. And one of the upshots of that was that if you're just focusing on usefulness, a dollar to a poor person or a pound to a, a poor person buys much more usefulness, by, uh, supplies them with much more urgent needs if they spend it halfway wisely uh, than it can provide to a wealthy person. So that injects into our thinking a degree of egalitarianism in the guise of scientific thought, or if you like, economics as clarified common sense. So I see the well-being agenda as reviving some of those ideas. And one of the people who's responsible for it, Richard Layard, at the London School of Economics, has written very much in that in that kind of tradition. Right, okay. So you talk about this idea of a dollar in uh, a poor person's hand being more valuable than in a wealthy person's, uh, or the utility that comes from it. Yeah. But how do you make these judgments? I mean, can you do this scientifically? How do you measure well-being, for example? Can you actually put a number on it? How, how do you think no, about that? And you can't measure utility either. Mm. So so modern economics after that period got mesmerized by the idea of being scientific and it didn't get anywhere. All it managed to do was to we had a if you like a blurry vision of what was true because I think almost every person listening to this will say, yes, yes, in general, on average, it's strongly true that money going to poor people, uh, right now, with a budget's being prepared and people are talking about increasing the dole for people over 55. Well, there will be some people who take it to the casino, but most people, and I don't know whether that buys any, probably buys less it probably buys less utility, less well-being than money to me or you, but most people will spend it on things that are much more useful. So 
I don't want to say, oh, well, we can't be scientific about that thought, therefore we're just not going to have it. But that's essentially, and we can talk about this more if you want to, but or you can just agree with me, that's essentially what happened in modern economics from about the 1930s onwards, where we moved from a criterion of well-being, which basically said everyone's well-being can be presumed to be, everyone can presume to count the same. And therefore, if we're just focusing on well-being, and of course, we can't just focus on well-being, we've also got to think about incentives and stuff like that. But abstracting from that, ignoring that, it's a powerful stylized fact that money to the poor is urgently needed and money to the rich is not. And that basic idea kind of disappeared from the methodology of economics in the pursuit of making it more scientific. And so we watered down the idea of what an improvement in the well-being of a population was and all we said was something which is sort of useless for practical purposes. It's okay for modelling and that's called Pareto, uh, making it a Pareto improvement named after a great thinker, Vilfredo Pareto, who uh, ended up being rather sympathetic to Mussolini towards the end of his life. But he he didn't like the idea that you could compare anyone's subjective state with anyone else's he produced Pareto Wellbeing, which says you get a Pareto improvement only if you can show that you can improve one person's well-being without harming anyone else's. Well, that rules out progressive taxation. Uh, it rules out actually pretty much anything. If you've worked in the Treasury, it's almost impossible to do anything in policy without, without some losers turning up. And then economics has nothing to say about that, and I don't think that's good enough. Mm, and I think okay. that the well-being agenda is one way to remind ourselves of that lack, that absence, and it's an excuse to try and bring back some of this, not to, and maybe we'll get to this, not to erect a kind of big alternative approach with a big brand new thing, but a correction to some of the obvious moats in our eye in the, in the sort of ways economists are thinking at the moment. Mm, okay. So how can we measure this? Uh, you've done some work on a, this Hale Index. Is that a way yeah. of measuring well-being? Can that be useful for assessing whether our yeah. well-being has increased? Or Moving into that, that's a good illustration of what I'm trying to say because I guess you could market the Hale Index. I'll explain what it is in a minute as a sort of brand new way to conceptualise well-being. But that's not how we thought about it. We started with GDP for some of the reasons that I've outlined earlier. And then we said, but there are some obvious ways in which GDP doesn't tell us, it doesn't give us what we can correct this in big, ugly ways where there are big, ugly deviations from common sense. And then we know that we'll, we think we'll have a better measurement of well-being and it won't be perfect and it's not something we want to run away with but it will help us think about policy priorities and talk about whether we've been getting richer or poorer as a society so let me give you some examples gdp is blind to whether young people from 15 to 25 are spending their extra money going on holiday 
or going to TAFE, going to uni, going to school and building what economists call human capital. We take that into account because we say that if you are spending this money on your education, your knowledge, your training, your capability, then you are investing it. And so we put that back into uh, GDP. And of course, if you think about how long in our lives we educate ourselves, well, 12 years is a kind of minimum for people pretty much now. And a lot of us have at least another three or four or five or six years. That's a huge amount of your life. And therefore, it's a huge part of the economy. And so when we start, when we put that in, we change, you know, you could see that as Australia invested in increasing retention in schools, which happened quite in a big surge during the Hawke government, uh, and then as we as we got more and more people with Cert 3 and above qualifications, that that produced a large surge in benefit, and that would be a good thing to think about. Uh, that's something we should congratulate ourselves on when we when it when it's working, and uh, you know give ourselves a talking to if we're not uh, making those things happen. And another way to think about this is to say that the business all through this period, the business community were obsessed with talking about workplace relations, and workplace relations are quite important. But that's the interface that businesses have with policy. That's the one that they think about. And it's vastly less important. I mean, if you do a really bad job of either, you've got a lousy economy on your hands. But if you are doing a halfway tolerable job of either, then human capital is vastly more important than exactly how you configure workplace relations. And anyway, no one's ever worked out a perfect way to configure workplace relations. So one way to think about this is to say that the Hale Index, this index that we built, tells you what's important and what's not. And some other big differences are that reflecting the comments I made about money in the hands of poor people buys you more urgent needs than money in the hands of wealthy people. Uh, During the last 20 or 30 years, Australia has become somewhat more unequal. It's it's a little overstated. People tend to overstate it. They tend to think we're nearly that we're as bad as the United States or the or Great Britain, and we're not, by quite a long chalk. But nevertheless, there's an effect there, and so that that should go in. And if we have become richer but more unequal, it's not clear that we're better off. And so, uh, you know, I think quite a good quite a good measure of uh, just a single measure of economic well-being is median income. And uh, median income has not grown as as much as actually. I'm not sure about that. Median income? No, I think median income's not grown very strongly. You might be able to correct me on that. But what we've done well is we've looked after people at the bottom quite a lot better than they have in the United States. Uh, and the our people at the top have been very well looked after, but not nearly as well looked after as they have been in the United States. Uh, anyway, so it takes into account inequality. Uh, it tries to take into account natural capital and the result uh, that natural capital is, you know, the quality of our air and our streams and and the amount of minerals that remain in the ground. One upshot from that, which I'm not, I, I'll just tell you about it, is that we 
the methodology we arrived at, we certainly didn't try to come up with this result, but the methodology we arrived at told us that natural capital, at least in terms of diminution of natural capital, at least in terms of what's happened so far, was pretty minor. And that even took into account greenhouse, but of course that depends on the trajectory that greenhouse takes. Uh, So that at least gives you something to argue about. You know, you're not Mm. just waving your arms around as I'm doing right now. And then the other thing we did is we we took a few areas of mental health which have which are common and have large impacts on well-being, and they were depression uh, and anxiety and obesity. Well, obesity is a physical condition. But that has a notice that is correlated with large reductions in self-reported well-being. And so we threw that in the mix. And as obesity has been rising, that's been taking tens of billions of dollars off our GDP. So that's what it looks like. And that, to mention what I said before, I don't want to con anyone into thinking this is a comprehensive measure of well-being, even though sometimes it gets reported in the press as that. But I want to say, look, it's GDP, and then we've made some big changes where the worst problems of GDP exist, and that's got to be a good thing. It's uh, it's the old clarified common sense idea rather than welcome to the new paradigm. Mm, okay, so the Hale Index, Herald Age Lateral Economics Index. Of just, well-being. Yeah, Correct. of well-being. Just so a clarification, yep. uh, you talked about human capital. So are you valuing the time input that people are spending in education and training because the the actual uh, resource cost of the education and training or the value added, that's yep. already counted in GDP, isn't Correct. it? Yeah. Correct. Correct. So what we say that if you go to TAFE, you go to uni, you build your human capital, the resource cost of doing that is already, take, is, is already measured in GDP. We're paying your tutors, your lecturers, we pay for the buildings if you go to them, uh, and uh, and so on. And but then we say that at the end of this process, you have invested in an asset, and that asset. And, and so, and we do the same. Uh, you see, GDP doesn't contain uh, depreciation, so it, it it's a basically it's purely recurrent, and it has no way to. Uh, conceptualize the capital account. It has no way to conceptualize whether you've made yourself richer for the future or poorer for the future. And so it tries to do that. Does that make sense? Uh, I'll have to have another look at it. Okay. But, yeah, because, I mean, the what I've seen in the past is that people have adjusted uh, GDP for the depreciation. So part of the... That's right. Uh, we capital do that too. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Part of capital expenditure that occurs is just to replace existing capital. So, you know, some people argue, well, you should actually look at net domestic product or net Correct. national product. And, yeah. and, and we okay. do that in, so we start at that. I, I, I mean, I didn't mention that because I just thought it was too technical, but we start with um, NNI, mm. net national income. Okay. Uh, so we've got depreciation in there. So we put capital, so we need to put capital appreciation in as well. Oh, I see what you're driving at. Yeah. Okay. Capital yep. appreciation. Yeah. Okay. Right. Oh, well, I'll put a link. Uh, in- I mean, let me just, let me just, so yep. people can conceptualize it. So you start with GDP, which has no measure of depreciation, your point, but the buildings you had this year are worth less 
at the end of this year than, or let's say, mm. plant and equipment. Yeah. The cars you own are worth less at the end of the year than this year. So we take that out of GDP. Mm. And if you're going to do that by exactly the same token, you would put back into GDP all the ways that, in which you've built capital. And the main ways in which you've built capital is through human capital. There's sort of three, four times as much human capital in the economy than there is physical capital. Mm. Okay, okay. It's a big effect. It's a big effect. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Look, what I wonder is whether we are actually much better off than we were, say, in in the 80s or 90s because, I mean, clearly the technology is just incredible that we've got now. I mean, I remember having a Commodore 64 when I was in high school, right, with 64 kilobytes of RAM and now any, everything you've yep. got now is just, I don't know how many thousands of times better it is, but it's just an incredible improvement. But yet I don't know how much better the quality of our life is, particularly with all the smartphones and the distraction and uh, yeah, yeah. and uh, do you know what the evidence is on that? Like, what is it? Uh, well, my you know, the style. Well, I mean, leaving the smart for the distraction point out because that's a very different sort of thing you're thinking about. We can talk about that, but my kind of guess from scanning the literature on that is that so. So I think one of the main things you're talking about is that a lot of the. Uh, streams of benefit that we get from technology are free or you go to google Mm. we go to facebook if you call that a benefit there are just all these free services and free doesn't work with gdp 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 it's just invisible to gdp because gdp put your binoculars on and then whenever someone's paying for something you work out you know you say oh that was two dollars that's two dollars to gdp less whatever they paid for it uh and anyway it's a uh, it's it's an, a process of serial accounting, uh, working out how much value has been added with each transaction. And um, in this process, the value that's added is not counted. Some of the, 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 the commercial value that's added is counted, and that is the advertising revenue. But um, so, so uh, and it, again, it, it raises the question of the household economy as well. I didn't mm. mention one of the great weaknesses of GDP is that GDP goes up um, if you go out to dinner and it doesn't go out uh, if you if you get someone else to pay for your dinner, uh, you know, to cook your dinner and pay for them, that uh, that GDP rises. But if you cook it at home, GDP doesn't rise. I could give you some more striking examples, um, more sexual examples. Um, they're a bit more striking, which is that... Uh, the most people's sexual activity doesn't uh, contribute to GDP, but going to a prostitute does. Uh, so that doesn't seem to be a very good way of measuring human well-being. So there are uh, anyway, we haven't tried to correct for those things, but <laughs> those are the 
those are some of the the sort of paradoxes of GDP. Yeah, yeah. But I don't mean to be too uh, critical of GDP because I mean clearly we are we are wealthier and to an extent. I mean, uh, just given the expansion of, uh, I mean, houses are much larger on average than they were yeah, uh, 30 right. years ago. That's right. Um, we're probably, I mean, the quality of cars is better. Mm. Uh, we can, you know, they're, and they're cheaper in real terms, I think, and partly that's because we've brought down the tariff wall here. Uh, but, yeah, I guess we are better off in a material sense, but it's not as much as you might think if you just look at the GDP per capita numbers because there are these other things we should be taking into account. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, the other thing is I'll just tell you I went this afternoon to somebody who was looking at an MRI of my shoulder, which is sore and tingling. Now, I'm pretty confident that, I mean, there are various ways, various pathways you can imagine that the existence of MRIs is picked up in GDP. I mean, you pay money for the for, for the MRI, but the fact that the fact that he can look inside my shoulder and look at mm. where the bone is and where the where the sinews are and say, oh, there's a spur there. And we couldn't do anything remotely like that. As an economist sitting there, very few people would have this reaction when their doctor's looking at an MRI, but that was what I was thinking about. I was thinking, <laughs> well, I doubt if that is properly reflected in productivity statistics and in GDP. It's an incredible thing to basically have your doctor be able to look right inside things and, you know, that that's a very powerful thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so I think basically... The, the takeaway is that uh, you know, well-being is this. It, it's much broader than than GDP. It's challenging to measure. Uh, how is this relevant for policy, Nicholas? I mean, should should governments be tracking this broader measure? Should they be tracking something like the Hale Index? Should the ABS be producing it? And should they therefore then adjust their policies to yeah, address yeah. this if there's a deficiency and and yeah so so that's that's the nub of the question so there are various lots of people say how wonderful it is you'll hear this it's almost a sign i i will hazard to guess it's a sign that you're listening to someone who hasn't really thought about these things very carefully or skeptically when they start talking about bhutan so Bhutan made a really big splash by saying that it was managing its economy for gross national happiness. But if you take it seriously and you look how they do it, it's a bit of a joke. Uh, no offence to Bhutan, um, good on them, uh, and they're doing quite well. So you could argue that it's all because of well-being. But if you try to look at what they're doing I mean, it's very hard to get anything published after about 2009 on the subject anyway from Bhutan. So it's a kind, but but it, it but people love the idea that they're managing for well-being. I'm not sure exactly when, but probably in the the uh, two you know the the 2000 to 2010, but but maybe earlier than that. A fair bit of pressure was put on the Australian Bureau of Statistics to produce a well-being measure, and they basically pushed back and said, look. We will produce a thing, a series of indicators called Measuring Australia's Progress. Is that it? I Correct, think that's what yeah. it's called. And we will not aggregate it all and pretend that we can put this all in a single measure. And so, you know, they look at natural capital, they look at equity, they look at the environment, 
and they produce rich data on this stuff. But the calls keep coming. Oh, we need to... So, so in other words, if we had this big demand to manage for well-being, then that's fine. The ABS could produce this data and then our politicians and our senior thought leaders, we'll put inverted commas around that, they'd be saying, good, we've got the data. Um, now we're going to manage for well-being. But that's not what happens. So that's a sign that something funny is going on. And so around the world, we hear this idea that we're going to ma- we're going to manage for well-being. Now, we might be able to go into this in more detail in, a, in the next podcast uh, that we're going to have on this, where we're going to have a closer look at some of this. But I think that is a mistake. I think it is a mistake to go running around creating, quote, well-being frameworks if they're a well-being framework of a particular kind. Because, uh, so New Zealand has done that. Well, well, let's go through what's happened. The Treasury announced that it had a well-being framework. And this was announced in a speech uh, by a senior Treasury official who shall remain nameless but is closely related to me. And um, it was announced that there were these five principles in the Treasury well-being framework. And you can imagine, you know, we, we can work out what they are. The first, you know, the, the, the top three or four are going to be prosperity, equality of some kind, going to be a reference to equality. Another one will be a reference to the environment, you know, health, happiness, stuff like this. And the fifth one was com- happened to be complexity, which was intriguing. And I sort of looked at this and thought, well, that's, in, that's odd. What, what's... Like, I can see how complexity is sort of important, but is it a plus? Is it a minus? What's it doing there? Now, the Treasury Wellbeing Framework, or so it was called a Wellbeing Framework. I think it was quite obvious at the time that it was not a Wellbeing Framework. It was a set of talking points. Is that a bad thing? I don't think it is a bad thing. Uh, Ken Henry, wanted to, the, the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, wanted to make the point or wanted Treasury officials to think more broadly about what the Australian economy was about. No problems there. But it wasn't a framework because a framework constrains you and it, it, it you will be applying this framework wherever you do work, wherever it's relevant. I can prove that that didn't happen because the Treasury wrote a submission to, I think, the ACCC on consumer policy and another submission on uh, regulation of financial instruments. Now, if that doesn't raise the question of complexity, nothing does. And the word complexity did not appear in those submissions. I've documented this. So, yeah. so it wasn't a framework. That's okay. But it's a very good illustration of a number of things, which is that, you know, it's very easy to grandly talk about visions. And we should be suspicious of that. We should be suspicious of that for lots of reasons, but without going into, like, if you were serious about that, I'd be suspicious of it because I don't think it can be done. I don't think it'll be helpful. I think it'll all fall over. But in fact, you don't really have to worry because when you get suspicious, what I'm mainly suspicious of is that this is what I call a reskinning operation. And we will get business going on more or less as usual with some new words dotted around. And I think that that's clearly demonstrated in the in the case of the Australian Treasury, and and to top it all off, 
John Fraser, when he was the Treasury Secretary, just got rid of it. And a number of people were quite upset. I think you were a bit upset. <laughs> and um, <laughs> you said you were sad to see it go. And I said, well, I'm sadish to see it go, but it will. It made no difference and making, having it go will make no difference. And, and I said, can you tell me anything, anything, any piece of work that was changed for you in the Treasury by the framework? And I think you had nothing to say then, but you might have more to say now. <laughs> Uh, well, I think what I said at the time, Nicholas, was that uh, I think it it was designed to change the mindset. Yeah, yeah. To get so it's authorizing. Of, They're authorizing words. Yes, yeah. yes. And I don't think you could ever say, well, as you mentioned, there was a, a submission that it appears wasn't informed by the wellbeing framework at all, which I think is a really, uh, you know, that's a, <laughs> that's, that's not very good. I mean, I, I'm, I'm surprised that complexity wasn't uh wasn't mentioned in that uh but yeah you're right i mean it's very hard to operationalize these things i mean because you know these things come from you know the senior executive or i think it was yeah either ken henry or blair comley or someone like that uh, very senior in the treasury and i mean you know they, they they wanted to have it permeate through the organization they wanted people to change their their mindsets from because there was a concern treasury oh we're just all econocrats and all we care about is gdp and the the economic numbers we're not concerned enough about uh broader well-being so i think it was well motivated it just didn't it's it's hard to uh, change well, practices well-being stuff is well motivated and that's my point um mm. let's let's have a little detumescence about how well motivated we all are and let's attend to the difference that we're making um, so that's the Treasury, that's the Australian Treasury. Now, the New Zealand Treasury is a very different story. The New Zealand Treasury um, actually kind of contacted me. I'd written some stuff on wellbeing and they contacted me and I was amazed when I had a look at what they'd done. They'd been working away before Jacinta Ardern turned up and said, let's have a wellbeing budget. The, the New Zealand Treasury were actually doing a great deal of work trying to reconceptualise the national accounts and all this kind of stuff. And they were pretty serious about doing it. But I tell you what's happened. We can talk a bit about this, about their well-being budget in a minute. But what's happened is they have put a lot of work in. And the result is that, that at least in principle, whether they've got to this stage or not, I don't know. But in principle, they would be able to tell you the, well, the self-reported well-being of Maori in Rotorua. Now, isn't that impressive? Well. Actually, it's not impressive because what's not impressive about it is that you've you've put a huge amount of effort and resources into something and thinking resources. And what are you missing out here? Well, what I'm arguing you're missing out is you know what the Maori well-being in Rotorua is, and you've got no further information about how to improve it. And that's what matters. So mm. I want to use well-being frameworks well this this hankering for well-being as an authorizing environment to start finding some things where well-being and gdp deviate where there where something where there's a big problem with the well-being and gdp is ignorant of it is it's invisible to gdp this suffering and i would like to i would like the well-being thinking to start being used to authorise this. And 
I was talking to a state government, a treasury actually, a treasury state government this year, and and I was saying this to them and they said, well, yes, but we need a framework. And I, and, and I said two things. I mean, firstly, well, why do you need a framework if it's not going to help you achieve anything? But I said, I can give you a framework. The framework will be not on how to measure well-being everywhere for no apparent reason, but how to build a framework which will deliver well-being benefits. And we already have a bit of a we already have a bit of a uh, picture of that because we've done it conceptually in another area which is sort of simpler and more technical uh, and therefore doesn't involve the human element so much and doesn't therefore engage our feelings in quite the same way and that is greenhouse so we have cost curves a very basic the first the, the first language we ever developed about greenhouse before even before Kyoto which I think if I'm correct is 1997 we developed the concept of no regrets measures what are no regrets measures they're things that are good for the economy and good for greenhouse and there are quite a lot of those um yeah. you know classic case of trying to improve the efficiency of at small levels that management don't pay a lot of attention to the insulation of warehouses and factories, the energy efficiency of electric motors in those things. And they're actually quite large economic benefits and they come with greenhouse reductions. And there are still some of those around. So I think, so the very first thing you go looking for is well-being benefits that are no regrets measures. Things that have a big impact on the on well-being, while they actually do no harm to the economy. But if that's the case, it's highly likely, given that people who feel good about themselves are more productive and less fractious and less likely to try and pinch, you know, try and blame other people for their problems and so on. That is a that's something that could be, we could do something very exciting. Now, let me give you a very small illustration. My best illustration of this, it's, it's actually happening now, might have happened earlier if we'd taken this seriously. In hiring, there is a bit of a craze. You can call it a bit of an out, it's maybe one of the best, best outcroppings of the, the woke stuff, which I'm not terribly fond of in lots of guises, but here, if you go to an interview and you don't, uh, one way of presenting well, you'll tell most people, is you you aren't afraid to make eye contact. You make the right amount of eye contact. Well, autistic people find that extremely hard and autistic people can be extremely productive. So your HR people, the people doing interviews, need to be aware of this. And if you're running an organisation that has lots to do with computer programming, statistics, various kinds of management, but probably pretty much anywhere, people who who are somewhere on the autism spectrum, not wildly over so that they become socially dysfunctional, but people on the autism spectrum can be, if you know that and you manage for that, you can massively improve their well-being. You can massively, and, and you can uh, gorge yourself on the productivity benefits that this produces. Mm, yeah. And so, so that problem I just mentioned is a large problem. It's not, you know, it might, inf- it might affect 
two, three, four percent of the population in, in some way, I think. Another large problem is that carers, older carers, so I get a bit older and my wife looks after me or vice versa, they tend to be socially isolated. Now, Australia's got some quite good policies on this and we have uh, we, we, we were an early innovator in funding people to go around to older people's houses and make them a cup of tea, have a chat and then move on or cook their dinner and, and things like that. But there are lots of things we could do to improve the social connection between carers and of carers and their community and so on. So that's another area. Another area I would argue would be teaching and probably kids on the autism spectrum, teaching and dyslexia. There are all kinds of things that uh, we don't manage for these things well. Well, these things massively depress the well-being of the particular uh, kids with those with, with, who are who have those characteristics. So that's just a bunch of they're right at the no regrets area. And then I'd like to see some real curiosity about what other kinds of things can we do which have very low low short-term costs and improve well-being because a lot of those are actually going to be over any reasonable period of time, no regrets measures. They're going to contribute to GDP and they're going to improve well-being. But other than a kind of broad sympathy for such things, you don't see these types, this type of thinking and those types of initiatives being very high up on the agenda for, in, in, in for instance, Jacinta Ardern's well-being budget. And if you mm. ask me the right question, I will then opine on the well-being budget. Um, I just well, feel I need to give you a word in each ways. Okay, okay. Well, I do have a at least one more question, and uh, but yeah, it would be good to talk about uh, Jacinda Ardern's well-being budget too. I, I was going to ask. I mean, how how are you going to go about this? But without it being like one of the concerns I have about this whole let's try and uh, you know, imp- I guess governments have a role of you know they've got to look after the population, but you don't you don't want it to go too far because you don't. I mean, in my view, this is yep. my opinion. You yep. don't want to reduce the capacity of people or to look after themselves. I mean, we should be encouraging self reliance to an extent. To what extent does this become paternalism? I mean, how do we do this without public servants becoming busybodies, without uh, interfering too much? H- yeah. How do you go about this? That's what I'm wondering. Well, uh, so, so I'll give you an example. With, yeah. with um, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, the idea of public servants fixing that problem, you know, it, with a hub-and-spoke model with Canberra bureaucrats or Sydney and Melbourne bureaucrats is yeah. just... Take you just take me out and kill me now. Uh, <laughs> what yeah, the sort of thing? So an example, I I chaired a thing called the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, and they have a program called Weavers. And Weavers is, um, and I'll call it place based. That's a, a term that a lot of people understand. And uh, essentially, what it does is there's a little bit of money there, and it engages carers. It so it sort of is engaging carers in a local community. A particular carer might be might get an honorarium for being a weaver, and a weaver will be weaving together, will be running some activities, keeping in touch with local carers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Just realising that because of the circumstances they find themselves in, 
they need a bit of help and resourcing in maintaining social connection. So it has to be, and, and it's very cheap and, you know, and also you'll, some of that money will get wasted and it won't work very well and others it will do terrific things and it can be, uh, it can provide sort of different kinds of sinews for a community. Uh, I'll give you another example. Uh, my wife set up an organization, my wife and a friend of hers set up an organization in Seymour called I Wish I'd Asked. It was based on, it began thinking about oral history. And the idea was to connect school kids and people in aged care homes and older people in the community to record oral histories. But it turned into a much bigger program than that. And it was, a, it, was it, it, it conceived of itself as a multi-generational well-being, a, a multi-generational anti-loneliness program. They didn't actually use the word well-being, but and it was a it was a fabulous program. Uh, and I'll, let me just give you an example of because it does go to the connectedness of things. And this is something which maybe we'll talk a bit more about when we when we look at uh, when we talk about this again, but. One of the things that people involved in well-being are always talking about is the way things are connected up. And I think so many of those connections are serendipitous that they're very difficult to manage for. But let me tell you that in Seymour, one of the outcomes of this was that young boys, are so they're 14, they're going, they're thinking to themselves, I'm going nowhere, probably. They're not that good at school. Uh, they're in Seymour, they're not quite sure, you know, they're thinking I might just end up unemployed and I don't really want to end up unemployed. And they get and they get involved in this program. Now, some of them are going to think, oh, old people, I don't want to talk to old people. And they get into and, and there are various, the, the program had various ways of ensuring that these introductions worked out as well as possible. Anyway, they start making friends with these old people and they saw one autistic kid saw an old RSL guy and they and the autistic kid became very obsessed with the medals that the old guy uh, the old guy had and they talked about these medals and the battles that he'd had every week now that was fantastic for both of them that is well-being but mm-hmm. let me tell you something else that happened you know that three of seven or eight boys who were about 14 you know what they decided they wanted to do for a job, they wanted to work in aged care homes. Wow. Now, you don't mm. think of young 14-year-old boys wanting to do that, but because because we're brought up in silos, you know, this is reintroducing into the community stuff that existed on its own 80 years ago. Mm. And I don't think I don't think what happened is that these three kids thought oh, well, I've always wanted to do that, or that's that's me to a T. I think they thought, I can do that, and I won't be unemployed, and I'll be useful, and I like these people, and I'll feel useful, and I'll have a decent life. And we are sitting around in Canberra worrying about how do we staff our aged care homes. Mm. That's a great example, yeah. So you could justify that. You could justify this program, which is run... It wouldn't cost. It doesn't cost nothing, but it's run on the smell of an oily rag. Uh, you could use it. I mean, one of the things that the institutions, the aged care homes, and the schools are 
I won't call them resistant to doing this, but some are. And of course, all of them are subjected to strong regulation, which has been put in place for completely other reasons. So safety checks, police checks, insurance. And it's not that you want to ignore the issues that those that that regulation is trying to address, but you do want to say that this is a valuable thing. And if it's getting in the way, we want to know about it. And then we want to think about the costs and benefits and whether we can do this in a better kind of way. And so it's those kinds of things that the the wellbeing agenda could could address, but really only by making stuff happen and then watching the ripples come out and, and working out where government's getting in the way, where it can help, generally speaking, not with large amounts of money. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Could I ask what where's Seymour? Is that a disadvantaged area in Melbourne? Is it, it is pretty disadvantaged. It's the place we the Australian word furphy comes from Seymour and fur, the furfies, which have now make money selling their name as a beer, and they give that money to charity. and the, And I wish I'd asked picked up some of that money. So shout out to furfies. But so so it's about um, uh, 120, my best guess, out of Melbourne, up north, just getting into Kelly country. Uh, uh, and yeah. and it's where a lot of canned fruit came from and the fur, and the furfies made boilers. And a furfy in the Australian idiom is what soldiers, the stories soldiers to- told. I think it had, this was in Gallipoli, sitting around the boiler and having a cup of tea. I think that's roughly the story. And that's where Seymour is. Very good. I learned something. Uh, and I, I was just thinking that shows the importance of connection and, and connection's an important part of well-being, being connected to family or to friends. And and yep. that's and a lot of people would argue that's what we've lost. We've got more people living yep. alone yep. and people just aren't connected. Generations, there's generational divide. Yep. So, yeah, I think you're highlighting like that's a, such a great example of highlighting how you can improve well-being with something simple. Now, this might this might have to be the last question for this <laughs> this part one of of this conversation. Um, you, you talk about these could be cost effective, this could be low cost. Yep. Is this where something like Andrew Lee's evaluation unit could be an important part of this story and figuring out? Okay, we're spending billions of dollars on these big welfare programs, yeah, and you know it could be that it's better we're better off spending uh, a small amount of money on little interventions like this yeah 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 well one would hope that uh, some nous about evaluation would enable us to get counterfactual snapshots i wouldn't mm. want to say let's do away with welfare i would want to say welfare costs us an absolute shed load of money and for a tiny fraction of that money we could be doing these kinds of things which have broad health benefits and by health i mean it in the broader sense physical mental and commu- and the health of the community and we could try to be uh, i won't use the word rigorous because that conjures up people with clipboards and bureaucrats and i just and and mathematicians and economists and i'm not talking about that i'm talking about trying to be trying to be evidence based trying to work trying to notice what works doubling down on what works and just doing less of what's not working so well. So okay. I think that's a great place to 
finish up. We didn't get to talk about New Zealand's wellbeing budget, and we can certainly fit that into the the next exciting episode. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Nicholas. That was fantastic. Thanks very much, Gene. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, if your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a rating. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.